He's full code, um, EF is 50%, the responding clinician managed heparin protocol as it used to be in the past. Mm. He's on two to three liters of nasal cannula. Uh, so if his blood pressures were above 130, we'd give him hydrol. They have been um, below 130 all day. Um, he does have hallucinations. They think it's secondary to the chronic hypercarbia. My colleague, while doing 30-hour shifts, began vomiting and developing migraine headaches. Uh, if I had just been in the OR and I knew that you know, a picture would have been worth a, a thousand sign-out words. I want to start with fundamentals, which is that patients deserve competent doctors, which means we have to figure out how to educate competent doctors. And that means we should study it. Finding out that handoffs are dangerous doesn't show that fatigue is good, and I don't want to have a race to the bottom. Hello and welcome to The House, the New England Journal's podcast for and about physicians in training. My name is Dan Weisberg, and I'm an internal medicine resident at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And I'm Lisa Rosenbaum, cardiologist at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital and national correspondent for the New England Journal of Medicine. What you just heard was an excerpt from A Night Float Pass-Off, one of the controversial products of the work hour rules mandated by the ACGME in 2011 as well as some of the voices that we brought together for this podcast to discuss the merits and pitfalls of resident work hour restrictions and the studies, past, present, and future, that inform them. And it's no mistake that we're picking this topic for today because hot off the press in this week's New England Journal of Medicine are the results of the much-anticipated FIRST trial, a large cluster randomized controlled trial comparing the current work hour paradigm to a more flexible one. So the first trial and the iCompare trial, a similar ongoing trial in internal medicine programs, will be the starting point for this brief discussion of resident work hours. It turns out, as everyone well knows, that the duty hours themselves have been controversial since they were introduced in 2003. But what you may not know is that also there's been a debate about the trials designed to study them. Today we're hoping to share with you a bit of this complicated story. And to do this, we've been able to record the researchers, ethicists, and the stakeholders themselves, program directors, and residents. Here's Joel Katz, program director for the Brigham and Women's Internal Medicine Residency Program. I think the 2011 work hour rules were well designed based on the best available evidence. What I would like to say is that that evidence was not perfect evidence, and there's still a lot of questions that are out there. Some of those questions are coming to light in the first trial and the iCompare trial. And primary among them is this question of what scheduling system can best optimize patient safety. Here's Dan Wong, a second-year surgical resident at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. What having a 16-hour intern work hour restriction means that you have to have a night flow system. We had uh, one patient where I was the night flow intern, and this patient had had a resection of a benign thigh mass. And it was an overweight woman. And what happened is the patient was signed out to me. And then I do my rounds to see everyone early in the evening. And I saw her and I noticed her thigh was bigger than what I thought made sense. But um, not obviously bleeding. By 11.30 it was bigger. And at that point she then started to drop her pressure. She was bleeding to her thigh. The thigh can hold an enormous amount of blood. So that patient ended up going back to the OR at 5 a.m., and she ended up fine. If I had just been in the OR and I knew that you know, a picture would have been worth a, a thousand sign-out words. So Dan begins to get at some of the essential challenges. We're not just trying to teach how to do an operation, 
but we're also trying to develop a sense among all of our trainees of what it means to be a doctor. And whatever this approach ends up looking like might be different for medical and surgical residents. The overall sense in surgery is that this is a pressing issue. And in fact, the preponderance of evidence suggests that duty hour reforms of 2003 and 2011 may have actually hurt patient care and resident education. And so um, not only is, it, is there equipoise, but there's, a, there's certainly a mandate to study this policy change. That was Carl Billamoria, a surgical outcomes researcher at Northwestern University and the principal investigator for the first trial. So what did they find? So hang on for a bit. As if the work hour rules themselves are not controversial enough, there's also been a debate about the ethics of studying them. So before we get to the results, we're going to hear a little bit more about this ethical debate. So I uh, matched at the University of Washington into psychiatry. And after I arrived here, I found out that I would be participating in a randomized clinical trial that I had not been informed of. And really got interested in finding out what would be happening to me and what the values and ethics of the trial were and what the question was trying to answer. That was Jeff Clark, who published an op-ed in the Washington Post recently expressing this view. To be clear, Jeff Clark's experience is by far the exception to the rule, meaning the investigators and program directors made a point of alerting applicants to the existence of the trial and what arm the program would be in. But Clark's opinion on that ethics of the trial itself is shared by Public Citizen and the American Medical Student Association, who filed an open letter to the Office for Human Research Protections in November calling for a halt to iCompare. Arthur Kaplan, head of the Division of Medical Ethics at NYU, agrees with Public Citizen's assessment. I think the uh, data was there in terms of saying, you know, fatigue and poor sleep really leads to errors that severely impact patient safety patient well-being. So it's not like the limits on work hours were done out of the blue. There was a lot of data in place. So it's against that backdrop that you have to say, well, is there something disturbing enough, bothersome enough that we have to overcome those studies and sort of do a randomized trial to prove what's going on? And bluntly, I'm not convinced that there is. Um, You know, in Europe, no one's allowed to work more than 13 hours in a row by law in most of the European hospitals. The uh, trucking and airline industry have long had restrictions fueled by concerns about lack of sleep. Everybody who flies knows that those pilots go off duty after a particular amount of time and you're often stuck waiting for them to get you another crew because they've gone past their allowed work limits. Why healthcare would be different, why the data isn't adequate for residents, in the same way it might be for pilots or long-distance truckers, I'm not convinced. Here's David Ash, principal investigator of the iCompare trial and an outcomes researcher at the University of Pennsylvania. How can we develop evidence in what is really a very multimodal situation to make a complex decision about resident duty hours? I'm not sure I would have thought that this would be such a popular issue. But but there's a little piece of everybody in the issue of resident duty hours. Everyone can find something of critical interest. And the challenge is reminding people that that's not the only thing that's important. For some people, it's you know how sleepy residents are. For some people, it's how well-educated our residents are. Um, everyone's got, it's like the three blind men and the elephant. Everyone's got a different opinion about what the structure of this is. Studies like I Compare and studies like FIRST are 
are really the first prospective studies designed to look at multiple facets of the resident duty hour issue simultaneously. That's why they're going to provide so much value to this important policy debate. So if you believe that fatigue is uniformly bad, then the issue becomes whether it's ever okay to expose people to that sort of fatigue without their consent. And this is where Public Citizen really digs in. We all have a vague sense that we rely on internal review boards, also known as IRBs, to guide issues such as consent. But these bodies and their tasks were conceived of in an era that preceded all these quality improvement efforts that we have today. But what's the difference between a quality improvement initiative implemented at any hospital, like surgical timeouts, for which no one is consented, versus research studying the effects of those timeouts? Not surprisingly, it turns out that the ethical framework to oversee this type of research is still evolving. So two very reputable IRBs at the University of Pennsylvania and at Northwestern University, reviewing iCompare and the first trial respectively, actually came to different conceptions of these trials. Although informed consent was waived in both cases, the University of Pennsylvania determined that iCompare was human subjects research but posed minimal risk, and the Northwestern University IRB determined that first should not be considered human subject research. Here's Mildred Solomon, president of the Hastings Center, a medical ethics think tank. Is it a minimal risk? I think that's where all the disagreement is, but my own take on it is that it, it does meet a minimal risk definition. So I think the IRBs in the iCompare study should be congratulated for saying, yes, this is minimal risk and we are allowing you to waive consent. Mm -hmm. Good. That's what they should have done. And now to be called to task, I think, is really indefensible. I think we have to do something new if we're going to go into the 21st century and cut our medical error rate and be serious about patient-centered care. So the first trial, 117 surgery programs and over 100,000 patients, randomized to current versus flexible work hours. The flexible arm did retain the 80-hour work week, one day off in seven averaged over four weeks, and call no more than every three nights. Here's Dr. Billamoria. So the trial was set up to look at patient outcomes and resident outcomes. And the primary findings in the, in the patient outcomes are that Overall, in hospitals randomized to the flexible policy arm, there were no significant differences in the primary outcome measure, which was death or serious morbidity, or any of the other 10 secondary post-operative complications that we assessed. Uh, this was a non-inferiority trial, and we found that most of the complications, including the primary outcome, met the non-inferiority criterion. As for the uh, resident outcomes, those were mixed. We looked at sort of three different aspects of residents' uh, perceptions and satisfactions with duty hours in terms of their perception of patient safety and continuity of care, their well-being, as well as their education. We found, interestingly, that you know they thought it provided better patient care, better continuity of care, better professionalism, and it improved numerous aspects of uh, surgical resident education. They did note that there were some areas where they had less time for family and friends and extracurricular activities, but overall, the primary resident outcome, uh, there were two were overall well-being and overall resident education, and there were no significant differences between the two study arms for those two uh, primary resident outcomes. 
I think these secondary findings remind that there's this aspect of the discussion that will always be more philosophical than empirical, meaning we can't get rid of the fact that we're going to have to make some trade-offs. So the question becomes, which trade-offs are we willing to make? We get a lot of people that feel like we're undermining the traditions and culture of medicine, which, to be fair, is really one of our goals. I don't think that there's anything healthy about the hours that residents are asked to work. That's Jeffrey Clark again from the University of Washington Medical Center. I find that the many 80-hour work weeks I've done so far are just miserable. When I don't have the time to take care of myself, I am just unhappy, and I, I know that a little bit of that rubs off on my patients. I try to have a positive attitude, but I'm not getting enough sleep. Um, I'm not exercising. I'm not taking care of myself. And part of that may just be me. I have more responsibilities outside of medicine than just doing residency. I have a wife and I have two kids. And this just doesn't make sense for me as a sustainable practice because I I have other things I want to attend to and, and want to help with. And they're not always selfish things, but they're just basic things like being able to spend a few minutes with my kids are really hard in an 80-hour work week. And so I, I really hate it. This sentiment differs among interns participating in the trials. In fact, many of the people we've spoken to have told us that many of the programs in the flexible arms of iCompare are continuing these schedules beyond the trial, not based on data, which is not available yet, but based on resident feedback. And for surgical residents, we heard that leading up to the first trial, many of the programs were disappointed when they learned that they weren't randomized to the flexible arm. Here's Dan Wong again. I had a very good chief resident in uh, medical school who said that every week you get a chance to scrub a case that if you're willing to stay late and uh, you're willing to work a little bit harder, you get to do. And um, he told me that he always did that. And by the end of his residency, he had 250 more cases than any other resident that in his year. And I think that the, the, you know, the hard stop of 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. takes away the intern's independence and ability to just say, I want to double scrub that case. Rachel Russo, now a fifth-year surgical resident at the UC Davis Health System, when she entered residency, she was worried about work hour restrictions. But there was some hope that we would be in the hospital more during the day when operations were going on and in the hospital more days a week. So potentially we could make up for some of that by increasing our operative volume. What actually happened for me was the opposite. Whenever we were under uh, the intern work hours, while we were in the hospital for 13 to 16 hours a day, six days a week, it still didn't increase our operations. In fact, the average went down from about 50 or so per intern per year to, well, I only had seven cases that whole year that I could log. So <laughs> that, that was a problem for us. So I can see how schedule constraints can limit educational opportunities. And what Dan Wong was describing, clocking in and clocking out, that can also limit your own control of your education. Yeah, I guess if we had a perfectly designed system, then each resident would be in a learning environment that was fulfilling and also safe for patients. I guess I can see a future where residencies define themselves in terms of striking this balance, and then we let residents choose accordingly based upon their own tolerance for long shifts. So if the first trial gives us anything, then maybe it's this permission, really, to know that such discretion is safe. Hmm. Yeah, that's a longer conversation. Which is good, because we're hoping you'll come back in the future for many more longer conversations about all sorts of issues affecting resident life, training, and the future of medicine. 
For now, thanks for listening, and congratulations to the first trial investigators. We want to thank the New England Journal for supporting this podcast. Tomoko Shibusawa, Kathy Stern, Debbie Molina, Marybeth Hamill, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Karen Buckley, Steve Morrissey, and Jeffrey Drazen. And everyone who participated in the interviews. Carl Billamoria, David Ash, Arthur Kaplan, Mildred Solomon, Joel Katz, Sanjay Desai, Lisa Bellini, Dan Wong, Jeffrey Clark, Rachel Russo, Shakina Elmore, Sanjay Salgado, Peter Barish, Jake Sunshine, and Andrea Merrill.